What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, Cramping Science. This is round two. We're talking with Dr. Sandra Folks Godek, a world-renowned researcher, scientist, expert in most anything heat illness related or thermoregulation. She's a full professor at the Department of Sports Medicine at Westchester University, given more than 80 regional, national, and international presentations of knowledge in anything heat or exertional heat stroke related. Uh, and so we're super excited to, to have you on here. Uh, just talk talking to us about cramps and maybe some of the myth busting and some of the science. And um, it was actually really funny. Just yesterday on Facebook in the secondary schools group, there was a, a post about what do y'all do for cramps? And I'm like, oh my gosh, last week I did a podcast with it. This week I did a podcast. This week I'm doing another podcast. Next week I think I'm doing another one just about cramping science because I don't know the facts. And, you know, I just go with, oh, well, here's a cool new product. Oh, somebody said try this. So I'm super excited to have you. And then, of course, Mike McKinney bringing all the uh, the scientific questions and knowledge, whereas I just have all this basic simple ones. So Dr. Sandy folks, Godek, thanks for coming on the podcast and joining us. Oh, thanks for asking me. Thank you. Thanks to you, to you and Mike both. This one is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science folks, which is F-O-W-K-E-S. Again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science folks. That's all one word. So without much further ado, Mike, his, uh, he's going to take it away. Hey, guys. Um, <clears throat> so I think in a little bit of a follow-up to what we did last week, I know for those that listened along or have watched, um, watched it with Dr. Miller last week, I think some of the myth busting that we talk about is um, I don't like to look at it more as myth busting as more as just an evaluation of available scientific evidence and seeing how it applies to our daily practice. So, but I wanted to start with um, just to get, give everyone kind of an idea of what Sandy's role is, because I think it's extremely unique in the athletic training field um, and research field. So could you just tell us a little bit about um, your work at Westchester and how it led you to working with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles and this idea of fluid balance cramping. I know there's some um, thermal regulation research in there as well. Right. Um, so when I uh, took a position at Westchester back in 1990, I've been there now almost 30 years. So 1991, I guess, um, you know, it was, a, it was a clinical position. It was teaching and, and clinical really only. Um, we're in a unique situation and we still are in this situation at, at Westchester where all of our faculty members actually practice. So everybody has at least one team, if not two, or doing um, hours in the athletic training room. Um, I'm still um, the one that runs our, our orthopedic and general medical clinic. So um, I basically see all of the athletes that the physicians uh, need to see. So I still have that clinical role. Um, but, you know, way back when I had to get my, my PhD. So I did that, um, actually uh, commuting back and forth to Temple it took me some time to, to do that, but I was still clinically involved. So my research uh, had had just kind of spun out of um, being an assistant with, with football at the time. Uh, and, and looking at the, the IV versus oral, I, I got into this area of, of fluid balance by looking at the difference between oral hydration and IV hydration, really trying to, it's, you know, it's ironic, it's such a paradox, but really trying to dispel the myth that uh, that uh, IV hydration worked. So I did that. It was my doctoral dissertation was on that. I actually used the Temple football players as subjects. So I've, the one thing that I've been really fortunate to do is work in an environment research related um, where I've been able to use the actual players. And I think that's very unique in and of itself. I've you know, studied over the years. So I started with the Temple football players, 
that spun right into um, the Westchester football player. So right after I finished my doctoral dissertation and I found with my, I found what with, uh, with the IV versus oral hydration um, was right when Corey Stringer passed away. And following that, I got a, a pretty large grant from the NFL. And then my research, you know, really started at Westchester looking at the football players. And back then, um, you know, the, the whole, the, the 2000, uh, a fluid replacement paper came out, and I had a lot of my colleagues, um, some of them who were athletic trainers in the NFL, were were asking me about whether or not I thought that worked because my 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 dissertation was in that area. So anyway, so my research kind of took off from there with the Westchester football players. Um, did a series of things back in 2002, 2003, and I, I we've done we basically studied them almost every year. Um, but that led me to um, a role with doing research with Philadelphia Eagles. Mm -hmm. um, Rick Burkholder was a head athletic trainer at the time. Uh, the two assistants were Eric Sugarman, who now is the head at, at, uh, at Minnesota, um, and Chris Peduzzi and some other people that were, well, those guys were, well, Chris and, um, and Eric were students of mine. So they brought me up to, to camp. So that kind of led to this, you know, 15 year run with doing first research and now more of a consulting role with the Philadelphia Eagles. Mm -hmm. And I always want to point that out because I think, um, right. Whether it's it's right or wrong, I think sometimes scientists get a real bad rap and not having their hands in a in a clinical setting. Like, oh, I looked at this in a very internally valid setting. How does this apply to an externally valid? I think Jeremy and I have this talk. High school soccer on Friday nights does not matter. You want a yeah. clinical clamping case? Apparently, Jeremy's got them every Friday. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how do how do we work with that? But you brought up a point with your dissertation that I think is actually just a good place to start of of, of looking at. It's it, again, it's a I think a discussion that's been around a while and it's coming back. I've actually heard the and this is just from me lurking around the secondary school ATs group. This idea that IVs are starting to creep into the secondary setting. So, really? mm -hmm. um, so I guess if there's anywhere to start. I think that's talking about fluid balance, plasma volume, and electrolytes because of saline. So, right. What are your thoughts on since we're talking about muscle cramping, where IVs might fit and where they don't fit? Right. So, um, my thought now in weeding through the research that I've done um, with uh, actually taking blood samples from players who are actively cramping, and in most cases, it's the, the it's the stomach systemic, you know, full body cramping. I did a series of studies um, at training camps, uh, taking blood when they're cramping and then looking at them, you know, after they're they're after they've gotten IV. So I do have a series of a couple of years of data collection of that. And one of the things that you see, and, and I just say this up front is I think, and I've seen it now in the, the new data we're collecting in the lab, is this um, electrolyte imbalance. And I think most people think it is the sodium um, that's the problem. And my research would really point to hypochloremia. It's the chloride that's a problem. So anytime you um, are in a fluid imbalance situation or a hyponatremia situation, when, when blood sodium drops, blood chloride is also going to drop. Um, but interestingly, when you look at players who are actively cramping and you look at blood samples from them, everything is normal. Um, Blood sodium is normal, hematocrit hemoglobin, um, pretty normal. They don't lose any more weight when they cramp versus when they don't cramp. So they're all, you know, 2%, 2.5%, um, you know, body weight loss, which is very common and normal. Um, blood potassium tends to run a little bit high, particularly in football players, but that's pretty explainable as well um, because of the physical nature of the sport. So they're, they're, they're little, you know, they can, they can run a little bit high in potassium. But the thing that 
typically is the case is that their blood chloride is too low. So chloride should range um, from about 100 to 108 millimoles per liter. And uh, when you take blood from players who are cramping, it's typically at 100 or below. We've had guys as low as 92, 93. What happens is, and then if you look at the same players, which we've done this, right? So we take players when they're cramping um, and then look at all everything we can look at. I look at body weight loss. I look at urine parameters. I look at as much stuff as I can, blood parameter wise. I've looked at lactate. I've looked at, you know, all the electrolytes I can. If you look at them when they cramp and when they don't cramp, the same players after a practice when they don't cramp, the only thing that's different is chloride, that when they cramp, they have low blood chloride. When they don't cramp, they don't. Um, but when you give them an IV, so this is, goes to your question right now, when you give a cramping player two liters of full saline, um, what happens is, is um, hematocrit and hemoglobin go down a little bit, certainly because you are putting this you know, fluid right into the vascular. So that's, that's typical, uh, and you would expect that in anybody. Sodium stays about the same. Potassium comes down a little bit within normal range. Typically, it may, range, it may be like five. Um, which is the upper limit of blood potassium when they're cramping, that it'll come down into the fours. But what you drastically see is blood chloride shoots up. It goes from, you know, maybe an average of 98, 99, and then it'll go up to, to, to 104, 105. So chloride is what really changes in all of the blood parameters after you give somebody an IV. Um, and I think that and what, part of the reason for that is when you give full saline, so full saline has a sodium concentration of 154 milliequivalents per liter. Blood sodium ranges between 135 and 145. So you're giving them about the same, the high level, the same amount of, of sodium, right? Um, when you give an IV, uh, when you give IV full saline. Chloride in the in full saline is, is just like sodium. It's 154 milliequivalents. So you're really dumping in a lot more chloride into the vasculature you know, when you compare it to what blood chloride typically is, which is about 100 to 108. So you really do put a lot more in and it and it shoots up, which might be, you know, part of the part of the reason, I think part of the reason for the alleviation of cramping. Okay. And I hope everyone that's watching along sees this. I'm actively taking notes too. So <laughs> I think it's <clears throat> I can see Jeremy furiously writing away as well. So I think that's a good strategy for anyone listening along. Um, I think I want to explore chloride a little bit because I, I think you know, you've been in the profession a while, you know, everybody, like they only pay attention to sodium and ignore everything else, like right. practically speaking. Right. But, um, so what role, like we can go down that physiological rabbit hole a little bit, does chloride play in, I guess, muscle physiology? So why do you think that if, I guess, just to kind of take everybody through back kind of to right. one-on-one where, where does chloride kind of really enter the picture for us? Right. So, so going back to your, to your muscle physiology, your your your, your neuromuscular physiology. If you um, think about the um, resting membrane potential of an alpha motor neuron, uh, and you look at at how you know we typically say it's the sodium you know outside of the cell, it's the potassium inside the cell, and that's what keeps resting membrane potential at, at negative seventy millivolts. Um, and we know that threshold for um, for um, an action potential is negative fifty five um, you know millivolts. So you have to get to that to that point where the voltage dependent channels open, right? So once the voltage dependent channels open at negative 55 uh, millivolts, then then you're going to have you know muscle contraction, then you're going to have the action potential, and you're going to have you know all of the all of the motor mo, uh, all of muscle fibers that that you know uh, are innervated by that that alpha motor neuron are going to contract. 
So if you, what I explain to my, my, my students is that sodium and potassium work really hard to keep resting membrane potential at negative 70. If you throw chloride into the mix, and most people don't think about the chloride, right? Because it's a passive ion, it goes with, with sodium, and it's kind of like the forgotten, there's actually a good paper out there that talks about chloride, and it's called the forgotten ion. Um, but if you look at chloride, and I always say, if, if you look at the Nernst equation, and that gets into real muscle physiology, but if you, if you allowed chloride to have its way, it would actually make the resting membrane potential more negative, closer to negative 90 millivolts, right? So it's the chloride that really keeps, in my, in my thought process, chloride really um, you know, makes the alpha motor neuron more difficult to fire. It takes it away from it takes it away from threshold. So, if you think about cramping, and a lot of the players will get the twitching, they'll get the pre-cramping kind of feelings. They know the players that cramp frequently. They they can tell you when they're going to cramp. They tell you on the field. They tell me on the field. Look, I'm going to go because they have this twitching feeling. And my thought process takes me to hypochloremia, which causes the alpha motor neurons to be hyper excitable. They're more able, they're more, I guess Kevin Miller would say, you know, they're, they're, they come closer to the cramp threshold, right? Um, and in my mind, that means they're closer to the negative 55 millivolts. And that's because, you know, there's a lack of chloride um, that's, that's in those cells. And that would explain probably both the local muscle cramps and it would, it would explain the, the, um, the muscle cramps that are more uh, systemic in nature. Yeah, exactly. So that's just my own kind of theory, right? Because I've seen this chloride. And the other thing I will tell you is um, we tend to, as researchers, we tend to look at our own little world, right? We tend to focus on, you know, for us in athletic training, it's, it's our little athletic training world. And we read journals that are related to our world, right? We read JAT, uh, uh, we read um, the ACSM journal, MedSci, right? Mm -hmm. We might read the Journal of, of Physiology. We read the orthopedic, you know, journals. Um, but we typically don't read outside of that. So I always say, you know, if you're looking at exertional heat stroke, you need to read the um, anesthesiology journals because yeah. they're the ones that talk about malignant hyperthermia, which is very close to, right? Yeah. So you read that world. But where I'm going is if you, if you do a Medline search, a good Medline search of hypochloremia, what will come up is a whole lot of veterinary journals because in the horse world and the equine world, when you're looking at high level um, athletes, horse athletes, right? The cross country um, athletes, the hunters, the, the, uh, the race horses, right? Mm -hmm. They also get cramping and they get systemic cramping. And you have to, I look at a lot of comparative physiology. I like horses to begin with, but anyway, I look at, at horses um, because their thermoregulation is exactly like humans. Horses thermoregulate like humans do. They sweat in order to dissipate heat. Whereas the feline and, and canine world don't, right? They just made heat through their through through panting. So horse physiology is very close to human physiology when it comes to thermoregulation. And I go to that world too because when I'm studying very large football players, I always think a very large football player, when you look at body mass, you look at body surface area to body mass ratio, they're actually somewhat more like horses than they are like small people, right? <laughs> small humans. So anyway, so I read it, but you will, you will find that. And in the horse world, they don't call it, they call it tying up, but horses get in titanic muscle cramps. And the way they get rid of those is actually to give the horses IV fluids, right? Yeah. So, and it also brings their chloride up. So there's a link there, you know, it, it's not by chance that two different species who thermoregulate the same way have the same issues, right? Um, and and you see that hypochloremia in the, in the horse world as well.
Yeah, and I think that's something that I think um, sometimes I think why people are dismisses the dismissive of research. Um, and we talked with Kevin a little bit about this last week about the um, the the, um, the oral nerves that might give some insight into why the relief happens so quickly with some acetic acid. Well, right. Those are rat studies. Those are not right. done in human studies. And I think that's the same thing with this. Right. We have equine studies that might, you know, now we know to where to look. And like, like you said, some players that sometimes resemble the size of horses. Um, I have a picture. I use a slide I use frequently. People have seen my talks. I have a slide of a horse that's rearing up, right? This black horse that's rearing up and then a football player that's that's standing up. And I'm like, they're kind of the same. Like yeah, they look the same, right? Versus something that's smaller. Not too far off. So um, with, um, I guess, kind of like with that in mind. So it always comes down to obviously interventions, right? So we're talking about IVs and things of that nature. We know for many different reasons. Um, I mean, I'm trained to do it. A number of people are trained to do it, but there's just not a lot of us running around, even though I know it's becoming part of our practice. Um, so that leaves your average person that might not be able to do this or in high school, you, even if you are trained, you can't set an IV on a minor necessarily. Right. Um, so looking into like, I guess, practical ways to approach this. So this is where I was kind of looking at the whole sweat science side of things. Right. This is a process that I think it's part of our education. We go through it and like the thermoregulation part. And I don't, I'm biased. I'm fully biased in this. this <laughs> field, but I don't think uh, enough people spend enough time really understanding how beneficial it is to, maybe we can't measure their sweat sodium concentration, right? But we can right. measure their fluid losses and at least make educated guesses based off of really a sweat patch, how much they drink in pre and post weight. So right. can you talk to us a little bit about some of the more, practical intervention side of things, I think that an A-team might be able to approach with this. Right. And I, I think that's 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 where we're going when you talk about sweat testing. I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more, more and more common. I get this question all the time. So it's very easy to for any any athlete um, to calculate their sweat rate. Right. It's you, you do it in kilograms. So one kilogram equals one liter. So you, you weigh yourself. I always tell people if you want to do a good sweat rate analysis. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you empty your bladder, you weigh yourself in minimal clothing or, or nude. We do that, you know, for in research, we, we everybody, you know, goes into a specific area and, and weighs um, nude, we get a nude body weight. But you weigh yourself in, in minimal clothing, you go out and exercise in whatever you typically do. So if you're a football player, you need to do football related things. If you're a nice hockey player, preferably you're on the ice, right? So when we test the flyers, we, we go to, to, to their training center. That's where we test them on the ice during practice, during typically a high intensity practice. So you, you do what you typically do, right? If you're a soccer player, go play soccer for an hour and do it at fairly high intensity. Um, and I tell people, and, and I know I get pushback about don't drink anything. You will not die if you don't drink for an hour. If, if you start the exercise bout and you are not thirsty, you're in a normal state of hydration, which means a blood alkalinity somewhere probably 285, um, which means you can lose you can lose a couple percent body weight and still be okay. You're not, you're not, nothing's going to happen to you and, and performance is not going to be affected either. So don't drink anything for an hour, come back in, towel off, um, empty your bladder. Hopefully there's not very much urine in the bladder. If you don't drink, then you're probably not producing very much urine because that, that's one of the error factors you're going to um, have, right? Because you, you in the research world would, would subtract out that urine. So dr don't drink anything. Hopefully there's not very much in your bladder. You weigh yourself out and then 
you take that difference in body weight in kilograms and that's how many liters you've lost in an hour. It's really pretty simple, right? You weigh yourself before, you weigh yourself after dry, you know, dried off in the same clothing, you don't drink anything, um, and that's what, your, that's what your sweat rate is for that hour. So if you've lost a kilogram, your sweat rate is, which is 2.2 pounds, which is not very much in an hour, right? So if you exercise for an hour, you lose 2.2 pounds. That's one kilogram. That would be one liter of body, um, or one liter of sweat that you've, that you've lost. Um, so that's pretty easy to do. And even in a team, it's not difficult. Um, if they are actually practicing for a couple hours, certainly they would have probably they have access to, to fluids, to water. So we would then calculate the, 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 the fluid, right? So how much fluid do they drink in that two hour time period? And you have to add that back back in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not hard. It's really not hard to do. Um, the sweat sodium or sweat electrolyte, because I'm just as interested in, in my field right now in the, in the sweat chloride as I am the sweat, um, sweat sodium. Um, so, you know, those, those in that situation, if we think that someone, um, has a high, uh, electrolyte concentration in their sweat, um, it really probably is best to, to measure that, right? So even if you have a whole team that you don't want to measure of, of, you know, 90 players or 60 players, um, or, you know, 30 players on a hockey team, if you've got that handful of players that you're worried about that either have difficulty keeping body weight on you know, when they're playing or, or practicing in consecutive days, or they're having cramping issues, it might just be worth it for you to do a, a, a sweat analysis, analysis of the, of the sweat um, itself, where you, you collect the sweat and you, you send it to a lab and you get it analyzed. Yeah. And I think that's something to, and just to let everyone know, I do this myself um, here at Northeastern. Um, and the way um, I personally think sweat testing, like with what you're looking at from an athlete, from a performance and health standpoint, is the cost is very I think negligible compared to the benefit you're getting. Like you can talk talk to any athlete um, that has suffered from cramps their entire life, and then if you correct a number of things. So getting back to kind of like what Dr. Miller talked about last week, it's not one factor. It's right. one of many factors. But if we correct this one and it helps the overall picture, exactly, you're a healer. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a miserable experience. So if you, no matter what, every game it happens, it kills your performance. You're off. Your, whatever sport you're doing absolutely you, you you are you are you are god i can tell you some of my biggest fan my biggest fans and that i've treated in the nfl mm-hmm. are the people that have cramped their whole life and i still i still in contact with some of those players and mm-hmm. and they will tell you oh my god you fixed my problem i've had these issues for 10 years since i started playing you know when i was 10 years old um and then and then you do the analysis you kind of figure out and you're right it may not be one factor but mm-hmm. you figure that out and let me tell you your coaches will, will love you. The players will love you. And it's, and you, you know, from personal experience, yeah. what that's like. Yes. And I don't even <laughs> use fancy equipment. I used on my kitchen scale at home. So if I'm weighing water bottles, I bring it home and I mark it's it not, off. And it's guys, not hard to do, right? Mike, I mean, you've, you've done it for years, right? Yeah. It's a spreadsheet it's <laughs> inch square of gauze and tegaderm. Like, exactly. And I'll tell you, the other thing is, you know, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that um, sweat. So, I mean, um, sweat rate, um varies you know individually right so any even male will range from you know as little as maybe a half a liter an hour so 500 milliliters an hour upwards of you know the large football players that i test you know three liters an hour so that's a big difference right 500 milliliters to 3,000 liters but you know that sweat electrolytes if you talk about sweat sodium Mm -hmm. the average is about 40 or 50 about 50 millimoles per liter and that depends on whether or not the athlete is acclimatized but that range is between about 10 and 100. 
Okay, mm -hmm. I have even outliers from that, but but uh, you know I've tested literally thousands of sweat samples in my lab now, thousands of them, mm -hmm. and it ranges between ten to a hundred. So that's a tenfold difference in sweat sodium and chloride as well. So if sweat so sodium is high, sweat chloride is high as well. Potassium is physiologic; it stays about the same. Yeah. Would you feel in your just based off what you've seen? So obviously, um, just so everybody knows I don't uh, annually test all 35 of our hockey players I just we're not in a position to do that right we actually use uh, weight tracking trends mm -hmm. to maybe flag some of these people because I know there's a fluid balance issue right um, and using just averages I can make a pretty good intervention right people who can't do that do you think it's still worthwhile to I know like n equals one we're all a little bit different but <laughs> athlete who's even having an issue, if we just stick with what an average sweat sodium could be for that person, at mm -hmm. least uh, fashioning an intervention from at least that as a starting point. Right. Do you think there's still use in that? I do. I do. And and you can tell the people that are really salty sweaters, and I, I tell athletic trainers this, let let those players, after, after they practice, let their t-shirts dry and see whether or not if you shake it, and it's just, you know, it's a silly thing, but it's really practical, right? If they have rings around their 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 t-shirts, or or you know if they whatever if they have salt on their clothing, or they let it dry on their skin, and you can brush their arms and the salt comes off, they are salty sweaters, right? Yeah. They have a sweat sodium chloride, a sweat sodium and sweat chloride um, uh, concentration that's up in that upper range. So you could even you know say, well, if the most if the highest range is 100, maybe they're 70 or 80, and you could still do the calculations based on that. So if you yeah. take their sweat rate, you still need to measure their sweat rate. If you take their sweat rate and then their, you know, what you estimate their sodium concentration is, you can make a pretty good, you know, you'd have a pretty good idea. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I tell people there's always a, obviously if you're doing research, you want to be as accurate as possible from just math, number one, but also sure. your, out, your outlook. But if we're talking clinically relevant interventions. I always tell people, I'm like, you know what? I'm here to tell you it's okay to be one or 2% off. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Right, do all right. Right. Exactly. You're uh, doing much more than the average person is doing, right? If yeah. you if you go to that length to do those, yeah. those calculations. And so we do know, and I think this is where I have like my own theories are really based off of like in comparison, very limited research that right. I've done to both you and Kevin. Um, and I think my my viewpoint is I think everything and this is just from clinically practicing, I think starts with fatigue. So I take this from the aerobic capacity standpoint. Mm -hmm. I expand plasma volume, they're gonna fatigue later, change their movement patterns later, and then you know, utilize energy systems differently. And then right. I think that's why I know it, I know it's complicated because that is not a simple process. Right. Um, like plasma volume is not just, oh, just one variable and it's, we're good. Right, um, right. That, I can still make their performance better and they're still gonna cramp. So I still haven't solved the problem. I'm just, right made my situation better. But I think, I guess where I'm going with that is now we're talking about, um, I guess some concerns I definitely see. I answer these questions a lot from other athletic trainers, new people to our staff, other schools of, well, okay, this gets back to kind of the old. So we're basically finding out that people don't eat chloride as chloride, like <laughs> no. it's usually sodium chloride and that. So it's, it's salt. So we right. also have FDA recommendations Right. So in these level of salts, um, I, I, I wrote a blog on the BOC blog about this that I got a significant amount of negative feedback. <laughs> a bit bold, and I'm just saying, hey, here's, okay. here, here's what the FDA says, but here's what sweat science tells me people lose. So if I don't replace this, 
I'm not in homeostasis. So I guess just for the people listening along, um, I guess we're about, Jeremy, does anyone have any questions yet? No, there's lots of people watching live, uh, but nobody's typed in questions yet. So if you have those questions, okay. go ahead and type them in there. We can get those. Cool, because we just went through like a huge fast part about physiology. So I wanted to wait, stop, wait, because they need to raise their hand and ask right. questions. So, um, but I guess um, looking at, I guess alleviating some of the concerns, because I know I think we're getting away from if you ingest sodium, you're going to get heat stroke. I think I, I don't see that as much anymore. I saw that early in my career where it's kind of funny that in the 50s, the bucket of salt tablets was actually probably not that bad of an idea. And it exactly. Went, it went away because they're like, everyone's going to die. Right. Everyone's going to die. Well, the problem with like, that was they didn't, they were withholding water, right? So if yeah. you don't drink and you eat salt, right, you're going to have problems too. So if you drink mm -hmm. when you want to drink and it's available, yeah. you're going to be probably fine. Yeah. So we, we know that from the heat stroke standpoint, but I think now we get into the other side because I know obviously you were involved with the hyponatremia consensus statement and things like that, where I think um, this is usually where I have these talks with athletic trainers. I want to say every event, all these interventions have good intention. Like, I don't think anyone's doing anything to hurt anybody. No. We know there was the issues in Georgia where the athletes overdrank and um, unfortunately passed away. But I think there's also the other side. Well, like Kenny said, if we don't drink, then what happens next? And so I think, can you talk just a little bit about of if we're trying to get sodium and chloride and all these things in our body, but maybe over drinking isn't, we don't want to promote that. What, what kind of strategies do you think from a risk standpoint might be in that? That's a good point. Right. So, you know, certainly, and you were talking about the FDA, and I think one of the difficult things related to cramping is mm -hmm. when you go into the store, you can see how much sodium and potassium is any in, in any fluid that, that you're buying, right? Chloride's not on the label unless the company wants to put it on the label. Mm -hmm. So I tell people if you have, if there's a lot of, so it, chloride has to be attached to something, right? Just like sodium does. So it's either sodium chloride, magnesium chloride, potassium chloride, or calcium chloride, basically, or the salts, right? Mm -hmm. So if you buy something that has a lot of sodium, potassium, you know, calcium, magnesium, then you're probably getting a lot of chloride too. I warn people away from potassium in preseason. Um, and once again, most of my research is in either the running population or in um, kids or in uh, football players um, and, and hockey players, right? So football and hockey obviously have have a component of physical um, contact, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the rhabdomyolysis, a little bit of muscle cell death, particularly in the beginning of preseason, will elevate elevate blood uh, blood potassium. So I try to say, you know, probably don't need to consume other outside of your diet a lot of potassium. Um, so, you know, putting putting back and we get back to, you know, putting that back, right? Putting putting back the sodium and potassium that you think somebody loses. I can tell you from the research we've done in NFL players. Um, they are typically consuming, and these are players who have access to, you know, dining hall food, any, you know, good, good amount of, of whatever they want to eat, um, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack. So four times, at least four times, if not five times a day. Um, and they typically are consuming about six to eight grams of sodium. You know, that is pretty much what they consume across the board. And I've looked at um, what I consider sodium turnover studies. So what, how much sodium do they consume in a day? And at, on the same day, we do sweat testing you know, analysis. So we know what they lose, we know what they consume. And what you find is that you have like over consumers and under consumers. So yeah, people, everybody's pretty much taking in between six and eight grams of sodium, which is a lot more than what the FDA said, right? A lot mm -hmm. more than what, what, what we should be taking in. But these are athletes who need to eat functionally. Um, so, but what you find is 
some players only lose three or four grams of sodium and they're eating six to eight. But then you have the other players that are losing eight, 10, 12 grams of sodium and they're only consuming six to eight. So it's those players that you really need to focus on, right? Mm -hmm. If you're consuming too much sodium and you have normal kidneys and you're drinking you know, appropriate fluids with that, you're going to just get rid of that extra sodium. Mm -hmm. It's the players that day after day, it's not going to be a problem, I don't think, in, in one day of practice. Or it's not going to be the, a problem in, in you know, uh, somebody running for, for a couple hours on one day. It's going to be a problem if they're consecutive days. And that's where the sodium kind of depletion comes in, right? where you're practicing in the heat on, on, on consecutive days. We don't have the multiple practices in football anymore, so we don't see that as, as that problem as, as much now as we used to. Um, but it's those players that need to replace that sodium. And body weight's a good, so when I'm, when I'm talking to clinicians, body weight is a really good um, way to track that, right? So if you are tracking morning body weight, you know, on consecutive days during preseason, um, and players are not regaining their body weight, that is probably a sodium depletion problem. They are the people that you really need to focus on getting more sodium and chloride into their diet. Um, yeah. If they are maintaining body weight, it's probably not a problem. And then the fluid, as far as fluid goes, and, and you know, you're, you're talking to a drink the thirst person, right? So, so your thirst mechanism is absolutely appropriate um, for maintaining uh, fluid and electrolyte balance. If you are consuming more salt in your diet, you will be thirstier. Because mm -hmm. it is going to make osmolality higher, blood osmolality higher, and it's going to stimulate your thirst mechanism. So one of the things that we have to really start to dispel, we haven't gotten into this, this hyponatremia um, research and this overdrinking research, which we just finished an 18-month data collection in our lab mm -hmm. looking at that specific thing. Um, but if you, um, if you teach people to listen to their thirst mechanism, they're they're going to be fine you know we have to we have to dispel this myth that body weight loss or dehydration is really harmful because it's it's not and you're actually safer if you lose body weight during during an exercise bout than if you gain it right mm -hmm. so if you're gaining weight you are at very big risk of, of eah if you lose weight and you really should lose weight even maintaining weight is a risk factor for eah if you start and i always tell people if you start if your athletes start practice not thirsty and you allow them free access to water, they are never going to be in a situation where they lose enough body weight to either affect health and welfare or affect performance, right? Because they are going to keep themselves in that two to two and a half percent body weight loss. And all of the research shows that, that that's not going to be a problem. Um, you know, are there studies here and there that might kind of, you know, I don't know, point to that? But I know that that's a big thing, right? So now it's not, it's not that dehydration is going to kill you. It's the dehydration is going to cause you to not play as well. And that really is not true either. If you allow your athletes free access to water, right? Yeah. And they have some idea of listening to their thirst mechanism, they're going to be fine. Most of them are still going to overdrink because they drink ad lib. Yeah. Which means they drink when they want to, not when they're really thirsty. One of my favorite studies of yours, I know you've done a lot, so I'm sure you have your own, is the one that demonstrated the lack of differences between pro football players and D2 football players in college. Yeah. I think this is where, like you said, oh, yeah. you've, got, you've got pro football players literally being chased around practice facilities with people right. holding trays of whatever they're hydration sponsor is exactly. and, you, and you've got the polar opposite which right. is three fields in a central water station that's just all water yeah they're I'm, everything's the same they're exactly. replacement rates everything yeah. nothing changes so i think it, jeremy i know you've seen this in some of the secondaries i know this is a, a, a topic of 
fighting among secondary APs <laughs> in jest. Uh, well, this school's got all these resources for practice. This school right. doesn't. They smoke us every single year. I'm like, guys, if you have a jug to put water in, you can't really complain about that. Like that's exactly. that's not a hydration problem. That might be a football problem. <laughs> yeah, that is actually a really good clinical study. And it was all done on the field. It was all field research, but you're well, right. That's why I like it so much. It's like, you can't argue this is an ex this happened at practice, vastly exactly. different skill levels in a sport. And I was like, and all their physiological characteristics were pretty close. Exactly the same. Yeah, it, yeah. you're right. I, I forgot about, you forget about things that you published that are like, mm -hmm. oh my God. And other people are like, you remember when you did this study? Yes, that was just a really awesome study. And I was not surprised. I guess I was a little surprised at how similar they were. Mm -hmm. Like one group lost 2% and the other group lost 2.2%. It was exactly the same. All the yeah. parameters were the same. And the hydration protocol was totally different, like you said. And I know one we was, Every player had like a hydration yeah. person with them and the other was pumpers on the field. And I know we've seen, you can see big differences and stuff like that with completely untrained populations compared to an athlete. Right. But when they're both fairly athletic, I think with standard deviations there. And I think that's sometimes where, especially in blood plasma variables, like you're talking like potassium doesn't move. I think some of the criticism of the research is, oh, well, they didn't have a thousand people. I'm like, that's homeostasis. Right. That, that doesn't change, but sweat rate is on the other side where well, yeah, you do need a thousand people because it varies widely. And so Absolutely. I think that gets into how people actually appraise literature, um, usually poorly, I think, um, compared yeah. to current interventions. But that's just a personal soapbox with mine. Um, but one of the things I think you mentioned really quickly that I, I, I wasn't going to let you get away without talking about this because I, I see it all the time and it drives me nuts, this um, adherence to... Um, replacement drinks. I mean, Pedialyte's just a um, a, a brand. Um, like I use the generic version for my kid when he's sick. I don't use Pedialyte because it's more expensive than the other. Right, one. right, exactly. They don't do the same thing. But um, the I think it was the um, information you found out about potassium that I think I remember like one of our talks. I don't think you actually either a expected or were even looking for um, necessarily, but you noticed a some pretty dangerously high levels of potassium in these high contact athletes. Can you just right. talk a little bit about that? Right. So, you know, the, the, the research that I've done in, in the, in the professional and, and college as well, the nice thing, the nice thing about my situation is that I can see what I see at the pro level mm -hmm. and study certain things. And then when I really think it's interesting, I have more control over my college guys so I can actually have them do things that I, you know, couldn't have the NFL guys do. But, um, we did a series of studies over, oh gosh, eight or eight or nine years of, of sodium and, and well, actually sodium in particular, because I didn't know about the chloride at this time, but sodium replacement drinks, different things that we could do to try to put the sodium back after we realized the amount that they were losing based on their, their, their sweat losses. Um, so we started with, with Rehydrolite and Pedialyte. So we did that study one year where we um, actually gave them a specific amount of Rehydrolite and Pedialyte and uh we did see really high I, I, i'm trying to think that year we didn't i don't know whether i didn't look at potassium or wasn't paying that attention to that but anyway the next year because i had a lot of um high school people say well we can't afford um you know ten thousand dollars of buying pedialyte or hydrolyte for our whole football team what do we do so then the pickle juice came in right mm -hmm. so i did a study looking at and this was in the nfl the pickle juice a group doing pickle juice and a, and a, and a group doing their hydrolyte and pedialyte and I, um, I matched the players. I had them drink exactly the same sodium intake um, throughout a day. And we did it over the course of, of six or eight days. 
And we did see, as you mentioned, on day three, both of those groups of, of, of uh, you know, the pickle juice and the rehydrolate group had average potassiums above five. So that was a little alarming because we were seeing very high potassium. The sodium was really great. The chloride was great. Um, their body weight was great. Everything looked, you know, really very good, except that the potassium. So that was worrisome. And what I wasn't taking into consideration is that both, well, rehydrolite, pedialyte, and pickle juice all have a high amount of potassium in it. <clears throat> so I was worried about that. Yeah, because I think I, what you shared with me was it wasn't necessarily the post-ingestion period that was worrisome. It was their baseline measurement for the day. The They've done morning. nothing. The exactly. next day, the next day, I think you even said you had a subject or two that was up five, 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 six. And, right. I'm like, and I guess I, I guess we're talking numbers here. I need to remember um, our audience. Just re, um, revisit like with hyperkalemia really quick. Like when does it become problematic? Um, Hypochloremia? No, no, uh, sorry. Um, high potassium for- oh, hyper, hyper, Hyperkalemia, yeah. 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 Um, so normal, and our body is very careful at, at, at regulating this, right? Mm -hmm. So um, blood potassium should range between about 3.5 to 5. Some labs say 5.2, mm -hmm. so about 3.5 to 5. Um, and some, you know, our pliers, the mean, so the average of both the pickle juice and the rehydrolyte juice was like 5.2. Mm -hmm. So that means, you know, they, they did range from like 4.5 to 5.5 or, or even 5.6, I think we had. And that was, as you said, the, the, the important thing there was we were taking those blood samples first thing in the morning. So they were coming down to the lab area and provided a, a blood sample before the morning practice. So this was not, you know, this was not after two practices in the day. So that was the baseline. Like you said, that was their baseline blood, pota blood potassium. Yeah. So when we stopped doing that, so then that really led to the idea of, okay, we know we need to put the sodium and chloride back. And I wasn't sure at that point how the chloride played a role, but we know that we need to put that sodium back, but let's do it without potassium. And I literally for several years made drinks. I made, I got off, you know, um, off the shelf, um, drinks that were kind of fruit based that, um, and, and it actually works better if they're kind of, um, um, citrus based cause it, it masks the salt a little bit. Um, and I was literally putting salt into drinks without, without any potassium. So there may have been a little potassium in the drinks, but I was making, you know, sodium chloride drinks. Right. And then I made, made the same for everybody until I really started to see a huge difference in the sodium concentration of sweat. And then I started making individual drinks for players. So I literally had, you know, 15 players and I had their names on the top of these drinks. And I was, you know, putting five grams into one, one drink and, or two and a half grams into one drink and five grams into another drink. Mm. And that's how kind of the individual supplementation ended up occurring over the course of, you know, several years. And I guess for those listening along, um, I just want to be clear, do not buy pure sodium and throw it in water. This is all with, um, <laughs> you can watch YouTube on why that's a bad idea, but yeah. like, um, sodium chloride, salts, table salts, which you can get at Costco, not pure sodium will, you'll have a pretty bad time if you throw pure sodium into water. So just please refrain from doing that. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go farther. Yeah. And you're right. You're absolutely right, Mike. Um, and the other thing you have to understand is if you are putting a lot of sodium in a drink, you need to put a lot of um, carbohydrate, particularly glucose or dextrose um, in the drink as well, because not only will it not be absorbed, the sodium and chloride won't be absorbed. Um, it won't be retained in the body. So if you're not if you're not putting some carbohydrate into that drink or having them drink the salty drink with a meal, 
then most of that, and we've done that study, we've done those studies in the lab, about 60% of what you're putting in, if you don't combine it with carbohydrate, 60% of the sodium you put in, if it's not combined with carbohydrate, is going to end up in the toilet within three hours after, um, after you do that. Yeah. So if you're trying to replace it, you have to do it with carbohydrate. And typically when we use the right stuff, that's exactly what we do is um, I don't let out. I mean, you'll get athletes out. Just, they'll take that and just it's gross. They'll just eat pack it and run off, which exactly. I, don't, I don't know how people do that. That's a lot of sodium. It probably tastes OK, but I don't do yeah. that. But well, they I, have they have like sucralose in theirs, right? So, yeah. so to make it taste a little sweeter. But if you really want it to be retained, it's got to be like you said, with something. Yeah, we always have it do it with team meals and things like that, which is something that I think um, it's a good option, I think, because we always talk about, I think is the information you share with me that it's increasingly being found that dextrose of all the sugars we hate from a health standpoint, the most refined <laughs> processed right. sugar helps with sodium retention. Why is that? Because um, because you have a, uh, well, you have a, so it, it's all about really absorption, right? So um, you have a passive sodium and glucose transporter um, out of the out of the intestines. Um, so in order to um, really absorb that sodium and not have it go, you know, right through the um, intestinal system, you need to have the, the the carbohydrate and particularly glucose. It's a glucose transporter. So anything that breaks down quickly into glucose is going to be helpful. So you can use sucrose, which is you know table sugar, or you can use um, fructose, but they have to be converted into into dextrose. Most most drinks don't use dextrose for, for, I think, two reasons. One, it's not as sweet as sucrose or fructose, and two, it's considerably more expensive. So if you see a drink that has dextrose in it or multidextrin, it's, it's probably more expensive than something that has like fructose in it, right? Or high fructose corn syrup, right, is the, the, the really bad one we all talk about. And people use that because it's cheap, right, and it's sweet. Um, but it's also not very good for you. Um, so you need that. You need the glucose and the and the sucrose. And that's the research back in the '60s, right? When sport drinks came of age, was really about that. It was about fluid uptake um, and how fluid was absorbed in the intestines. Um, you know, quicker or better if you had sodium and, and glucose combined, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that was all about fluid replacement. But there's a difference in fluid replacement and sodium replacement. Because if you look at um, the typical sport drink, it has about six six to 7% carbohydrate, but it only has 18 to 20 milliequivalents of sodium, right? So go back to what I said about the average sweat sodium is between 40 and 60. It's right about 50, 52, right? Which is, you know, two, two and a half times what's in the typical fluid replacement drink. If you're trying to replace sodium and my feeling is chloride with that sodium. If you're trying to replace sodium, then the sodium content has to be considerably higher than that. So, you know, in, in talking with people like Ron Mann, um, and, uh, you know, who did a lot of research over in Europe with the, with the soccer players, he and I were on the same writing group for the consensus paper. So I talked a lot to Ron because he'd done this kind of research too. And he also was making drinks, by the way, for their Olympic soccer team, right, in, 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 uh, in the UK. So we're not talking about somebody who doesn't know what he's, he's doing, right? Um, but he was making drinks that were 60 to 70 um, uh, milliequivalents of sodium. So, so four, you know, three times what's in a typical um, fluid replacement drink. So sodium replacement drinks really need to be high in sodium, but they also need to be high in carbohydrate. And there was a really good study that came out of Japan about five or six years ago. And they found that the optimal carbohydrate um, uh, concentration in a sodium replacement fluid is 10 to 12 percent. 
So if you're really trying to replace the sodium and chloride, you also need to have that amount of, so, of, of, uh, of carbohydrate. And typically you're drinking that drink after practice, by the way. You're not drinking it during practice. Um, now I will tell you, triathletes and people like that are drinking it along the way, right? Yeah. They're, they're drinking fluids that are high in carbs because they need the carbs. But those are, those are sodium replacement drinks, mm -hmm. not fluid replacement drinks that you drink during practice. And I think that gets, it's very convoluted. People don't understand the difference between the two. Yeah, and I think that's where some of the, um, the issues come about. I think looking at, um, looking at that, I think we always run into this. I'm sure you've had discussions with this, especially in the NFL and probably college as well, is I think beverage temperature. Because everyone wants to know if I, drink it, if I drink it body temperature, does it leave my stomach faster? Does it diffuse across the small intestine? Um, what are your thoughts on like? I think, it, I think it needs to be palatable. I mean, I think some of the old research showed, and I don't know what Kevin has done a lot more research in, in the gastric studies, you know, certainly much more than I have it. And, uh, but my feeling is it needs to be palatable. And there are some people who don't like real cold fluids. So if they don't like real cold fluids, they're less likely to drink it even when they're thirsty. So I, I personally drink things that are more room temperature because I, I, I tolerate it better. Mm -hmm. So as far as the gastric emptying and, and, and uptake, I don't think it really matters because by the time it gets to the intestines, it's body temperature anyway, right? Yeah. So whether or not it empties from the stomach a little faster, if it's colder, you know, I, I don't know. I would have to ask Kevin about that because I haven't done those studies. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm already uh, the practical opinion side of things is kind of what you said. It's like we can have all the science in the world, but it doesn't matter if it's still in the, the container. Exactly. Like, it can taste great, but if they don't drink it, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Um, so most, I will say that most people, and, and being on the you know, on the football field a lot during preseason, um, most of the players when it's hot, they like something cold because mm -hmm. it feels better to them, right? So mm -hmm. if it makes them feel better, does it cool them down? Probably not. They would have to drink so much of it, it would make them hyponatremic if they drank that much. But but it feels better for them. So certainly providing them with what they like, like you said, from a practical standpoint, is best. Or like when we had a hockey game, we played one of the games that they had at the ice rink in a Fenway Park. And ah. <laughs> I remember at that game, I had to put uh, lukewarm water in the water bottle so they wouldn't freeze by the end of the first period. So uh, there you go. <laughs> I, I found that out the hard way. Um, it's all previously. about the practical part, right? Yeah. I was like, you can either have water or not have water. And we'll talk about temperature later because it's going to freeze. So, exactly. Yeah, it was 30 degrees at game time. It was oh. pretty so, <laughs> um, so I guess along those lines, um, when we talk about ingestion of chlorine or chloride, not chlorine, don't right. don't, eat, don't drink chlorine. So if chloride <laughs> is um, really kind of what we're getting at here, do you, un so I have at least information on how long it takes for sodium to be, after you ingest it, how long it's actually utilized, not just circulated in the bloodstream, but time to utilization. Have you noticed anything with chloride with that? Any research with that or? I haven't. You know, most people are not studying chloride that way, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's an area that would be really great to, to, to have people study uh, more from a cellular level. My guess is it's similar to, to uh, it's got to be similar to sodium because mm -hmm. it's a passive ion and it goes with sodium. So any place sodium's going, chloride is, is going as well. Yeah. So I would think that would be true all the way along the line, like you're talking about. Yeah, because that's the thing is I always, we all see it. It's just someone's having an acute cramping bout and it's, uh, like guys, anything they're eating or drinking right there is not right. leaving their stomach. It will at some right. point it'd be beneficial, but probably it's not going to be ready in the point. I think that was where Kevin and I only got so far in the other podcast about, okay, well, let's explore this neurological topic, which right. I think if we're, and if we're dealing with chloride, and again, 
um, ion channels. I mean, that that is neurological in my opinion. So, or it's not my opinion. I think that's scientific opinion. So, um, do you think where does this fit in, like the neurological side of things? Do you think? Um, and once again, this is not my area of research, but certainly there are um, there are receptors in the in the back of the the throat. Um, that, that are like Osmo receptors. And, and I do think absolutely there are some things that you can consume that will, you know, maybe relax muscle cramping, um, immediately or, or, you know, within a reasonable time period that are affected by those, those, uh, those receptors. So acidic acid, I think is one, and that's why, um, you know, things like mustard and things like, um, pickle juice and, and, uh, you know, vinegar, those types of things work because, because of the acidic acid. Yeah. And I, I do think that's I do think that there, that plays a role as well. I mean, well, we've talked, you know, about the fact that, you know, cramping is is multifactorial. OK, so I think, uh, Jeremy, how much time are we looking at here? I've got like selfishly lots of questions I can answer, <laughs> but I want to make sure I'm being conscious of time constraints. Right. Uh, it's really kind of depends on uh, Sandy if she has a I know Mike you have a stop time and so we'll kind of keep going until one of you just ends the call uh, but okay. Tim Tim Acklin uh, who's, who's watching live I know Perry just asked that or Mike just asked Perry's question but he said what do you think about pretzels and fluids pregame uh, as far as we're talking about cramping science and I know last week when we talked to Kevin Miller you know Mike you mentioned that the fluid replacement has to start before game and you know again here you mentioned that each individual situation, each individual cramp is that exactly that. It's it's one cramp, it's one one player, and there's so many other factors. But in general, thoughts on pretzels or salty foods and fluids pregame? Uh, yeah, I, I'm a real fan of putting the salt back um, in, a di in, in the diet, right? So making sure that, um, you know, it's all about preventing, in, in, in my feeling, is, is if you can prevent the, the cramps from happening, um, you know, obviously that's what you want to do. And putting the sodium and chloride or, you know, back in and the, and the carbohydrates back in a food um, at meals is, is always the best way to go. So anything you can do like that, you know, I think it's going to be very helpful. So, yeah, pretzels are absolutely a good alternative as far as, you know, putting the putting the salt back with carbohydrate. Right. Yeah. And I would say with the nutrient timing thing, because that's an area where my just personal investigation has gone to answer, I think, further is. I think when the bus gets to the field right before a game is probably too late. Um, you right. need to encourage these athletes to either have it with breakfast or lunch. Um, cause if again, to what Dr. Go Dr. Folks Godick has noticed with uh, chloride being, there might be something there to this. If it does follow sodium, then let's pay attention to sodium. And I know if, um, our personal experience with that is people that have been salty sweaters that we've identified, um, with sweat testing, they're only in a good place if they're doing it at like a one o'clock lunch with a seven o'clock game. Right. Um, right. And so, but I also think there's the other benefit and we kind of talked about this a little bit with Kevin and this is a whole other podcast. that's totally different about hydration right. on that road is a plasma volume expansion. Right. So you're going to get a, what's largely a performance benefit too. Like if they have an expanded plasma volume before an aerobic activity where an aerobic energy system is used, yeah, you're going to delay fatigue, um, ignoring right. all other aspects about sports. So I would say, I know athletic training is primarily healthcare, but with we work with sport, you can't ignore the performance side of things. Right, and, right. Um, we all know fatigued athletes get hurt more. Like I exactly. think the epidemiology supports that. But um, so, yeah, why wouldn't you want to give your athletes a expanded plasma volume, greater aerobic capacity and potentially offset or delay, hopefully prevent the potential or the situation right. that contributes to cramping? 
Hey, Mike and Jeremy, I, I do have to cut off. I've got to go. And if maybe we can, uh, you know, do another one, uh, if, if there's other questions that come in. I didn't talk at all about the research that, that I have gone on in my lab, which is really awesome research as far as fluid replacement goes. Um, but I, 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 got, I got to jump. I got to run. If we're going to talk fluid replacement, I would argue that's a totally different topic in general. Right. Like, totally different topic. Exactly. We're, we're not even talking about cramping. We're talking about, and I think that's probably value is just a, a podcast in its own. Okay. Not trying to take over charities. <laughs> <He's writing this, but laughs> no, no, I, I love it. Uh, so the more we can dig into this and help me understand, because, you know, I'm not a researcher, the more you guys talk and I can just pick up little pieces here, ask my questions, ask the, the people's questions, then it just helps us to, to grow. So, uh, right. Sandy, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or find you or find some of your research, where's, where's the best way to do that? Uh, probably my Westchester email. So sfolksgodak at wcupa.edu. So you should be able to find me on the West, Westchester website in the Department of Sports Medicine. All right, or if you just Google Sandra F O W K E S, it's going to come up as either there, her on Loveland, or her at the Westchester or the Heat Institute. Any of those things there, if you just search Google search because I, I did not like six times in the last two days, you're going <laughs> to find her. Right. Okay. Uh, so, so if for some reason you can't remember that email address or you can't remember sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science folks, you can also just Google her and you'll be able to find all her contact information <laughs> there. Um, all right. So, uh, Dr. Folks, if you want to just go ahead and hit your little red button, you can jump out of the call and then I'll finish closing it out with Mike. All right. Perfect. Thanks guys so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Very so informative. Much. Thank you. All right, Mike. So as she's closing it out, any other thoughts, any things you want to share um, before we, we wrap it up completely? I think it's, um, I always like talking with um, Sandy and Kevin together because I think with both of their areas of research, you get a much, and I mean, like you said, you're, you're, you're in this learning process with this too. So I think you can probably echo, you get a, a very broad spectrum of information and it, the joys of research would probably cause more questions than it actually answered. And I'm sorry to anybody listening for that, if that's the case. Um, but it's the truth. Like Kevin alluded to, it's a really complicated issue. It's not as simple as throw a mustard packet at someone and you're golden. Like, yeah, that might have worked for one athlete three years ago, but you might have an entirely different problem. Maybe it's fatigue. Maybe it's this new exciting um, research into chloride that has some pretty serious implications for hydration, which we were talking about with IVs. I didn't go down the IV band, you know, rabbit hole too much because we just know that's not feasible in very, very, very many settings. So it's, you know, what's practical for you, um, I think is, it, it, it is complicated, but everything we did, like assessing this outside of sweat testing is largely free. It just takes, you know, AT power to really do. So it's like whether you get student aids, you can gather a lot of this information. Um, and heck, athletes can report it back to you on their own, like looking at sweat rates and um, things of that nature. And again, being able to estimate a free, it's an equation, it's math. You can make a macro and an Excel sheet to do it for you. Um, I think that's pretty easy to do. Um, did you have any questions you want to see if I can answer? Well, we still got some time. Um, no, I mean, we, we covered uh, some of the questions that were asked live. I know that one of the things that I think it was Trent Trump had mentioned is that that instead of looking for these products to prevent cramping, we need to do the education on the front end. Um, and and he was saying if you carry these products around, it kind of enables the athletes to to not do the preventative care. What are your thoughts on that? I, I totally agree. I think um, 
we obviously want people to like, we're there to help people. And then I think there's a fine balance into people relying on you and not changing their behavior to help themselves. And so I think there's a big, um, a big discussion to be had there where, yeah, you need to kind of like what Sandy was saying, the vast majority of things that derail any of what we're talking about is the behavior of the patient, not our behavior necessarily. So we need to train them, educate them in the sense of give them something they can do that's easy. Like, I know you spoke with the right stuff people. If you just give them a right stuff packet in your lunch and just say drink water the rest of the day, any athlete can do that. You don't have to be any level of athlete to like achieve that. That's adding something to your lunch. That's it. And so I think things like that are what we need to do. And I think, yeah, it does start with understanding um, from the AT side of things, like what interventions am I providing my patient? And there is a very, very good evidence-based argument to be made with things like this because it's we're dealing with uh, uh, parts of the human body that s support homeostasis. So the same arguments that could be made for, well, I did this group of exercises and it prevented an injury and there might not be some research there, but it didn't hurt anyone, is a different discussion when I'm having people overdrink, gain weight during exercise to prevent cramping, but I also might be causing hyponatremia unintentionally. So I think that's a very valid point that I think ATs need to be more aware of. One of the things you said, you know, is putting that the right stuff or whatever it is, the pretzels and those fluids in their in their lunch. Is that something that you do every single day or so like soccer, they're not going to practice Wednesday, uh, you know, so they have a game Monday, they have a game uh, Friday and they're not going to practice Wednesday. So on Wednesdays, do I still need to do that? Or is this only on game days that I need to focus on that? Or what does that look like? I think it would be not looking at it as a, and this is where I think sometimes our interventions get distracted by the setting we're in because we're focusing on games. And it's almost like ignore the game, then it's a game. You want to focus these interventions when they're going to have the highest level of physical activity. Because unfortunately, we have athletes we know they don't play on Friday nights, they don't play on Saturdays. So we don't want that intervention for them because it's not useful. It's a waste of their time, but they're all going to go through that hard practice Monday, that hard practice Tuesday. And that's where you might, you know, build on their front end into a week, which is, I think, more specific to certain high school sports, because I know obviously volleyballs and some other sports play every Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so you kind of have to look at that a little bit closer. But I think it's more about um, whether that intervention is necessary. We talked a little bit about it, the body weight tracking. So if you have an athlete that is just watching the numbers and if they start trending down, well, we need to do an intervention. Even if it's a Wednesday, they're not doing anything. Like they've got to get back up so they're prepared for Thursday's high bout, higher bout of exercise, if that makes sense. All right. So a lot of times in Texas in August, we'll have a morning football practice. So I'll get those kids that don't come, don't um, eat breakfast or maybe they just have a banana so that they're not puking in practice. So to prevent the, the dehydration, the cramping, what do you recommend for us – to educate those athletes on to, so that they're ready for the next day since they can't, you know, have lunch and prepare for the, the dinner practice. So what do you, how do we do that? I think that's, and that's one I think really specific to high school where I would get the parents involved with your preseason meetings, because what's going to happen is their first thing in the morning practice is going to be influenced most by what they're eating for dinner at home that night. And so if you get the parents involved, I mean, I know kids still cook for themselves, but a lot of the parents and I'm one now too, feed their kids. And so if you get them involved with this process, knowing that, hey, you're not only doing right by your son or daughter, it's nutritionally beneficial for them the next morning. We don't ever advocate skipping meals, but I'm with you. I know it happens. But um, 
it's nutrient timing. It's almost front loading them. So even if they're sleeping overnight, there's still something in the tank the next morning that's supplemented with like a bagel and peanut butter or banana or something, something like that. Cause we deal with that a lot too. We have a lot of morning practices in the collegiate setting, um, distance running soccer's our volleyball team practices 6am every, every day this year. So it's, um, it's definitely the, the dinner portion is where you should focus on that. All right. And then again, our, our list that we kind of came up with, uh, Dr. Miller was like, we just said, if you're going to prepare for the highest activity level, you want to start, you know, several hours before, um, you want to know that there's many factors involved. So you got to ask good questions. Just like he was saying, is it because of stress with a homework or something at the home life or no sleeping or a cold or, Things like that. So know that those other factors kind of make them more likely to, to cramp or to, to be dehydrated and also they affect their, their nutrition. Um, consider keeping a cramp journal for frequent crampers. And then once a cramp happens, you want to stretch that immediately. And then the small amount of pickle juice will help again immediately. But the <laughs> as athletic trainers, one of the things we, we are, I guess, trending back towards is the preventative medicine where so long we've been the reactive medicine. Uh, again, the prevention is so much more valuable. Um, is there anything else that you think on that list that we kind of need to fine tune or adjust or Um, add? No, I think it's a pretty good list because even with the ingestion portion, like we said, Sandy's, um, uh, research with chloride does follow a lot of the sodium replacement. So I think you will get some of that. Um, and I would say the way that list is actually organized in order is perfect. It's got you know, fatigue, sleep, and stress, these macro type ideas that if we're being, you know, honest with our athletes, if I'm giving something someone on a sideline, that is a micro intervention. There is a lot of things that have gone wrong and snowballed long before that point. And so if we're talking about fatigue, stress, and sleep, um, you're going to have a global positive effect with your athletes. And that's just me kind of backing up from the topic we're talking to and just advocating that of, I know we live in a world that's tech heavy, kids don't sleep and it's, there's a lot of stressors out there, but it all starts with that. And then everything kind of snowballs downhill, whether, cause now that you're going to find all the other problems of they're not eating because of class, they're not sleeping because of homework, they're not sleeping because of social life and things like that. Well, there's lots of positive benefits to that before you and I start talking about, is this right stuff at lunch or afternoon snack? Um, none of that matters if they slept three hours, none of it matters. And then, so I think that's where that order of that hierarchy, kind of like the upside, like the pyramid, I think is a really good place to start. All right. And then the chloride topic, like it was kind of a little beyond me from my understanding. I just kind of got lost in there. Um, And so she was saying a lot of the drinks that you would find at the store, you know, whether that's hoist or Gatorade powered, whatever, they don't list their chloride unless they specifically decide to, but the chloride has to be attached to something like potassium chloride or sodium chloride. So can you, I guess, just make that a little simpler for me to understand? Yeah. So it's kind of like, and the reason I I told people, it's the same reason, like you don't, you can't eat pure chloride and you can't eat pure sodium because I've seen, I know people have seen the YouTube videos. If you throw pure sodium in water, it explodes. So that's, that's why you can't eat that. Um, chloride's no different. There's obviously some, not, it doesn't react like that, but dietary wise, you, you don't want to do that. And so what she's talking about is obviously our body breaks down nutrients when you ingest it. So um, since it's bonded to sodium, sodium chloride, magnesium chloride, you can look for those in the ingredients, um, usually in the ingredient section. Um, unfortunately, some will just list it as an ingredient, but they won't necessarily tell you how much is in there. So you're still kind of guessing a little bit, but some is better than none. Um, but 
I think that's something that is, it's becoming more prevalent in the cramping research world because when they look at sweat outputs on their electrolyte analyzers, they've got, you know, sodium, sodium, chloride, magnesium, potassium, and all the different electrolytes. And they're starting to notice more and more trends with, with that chloride number. Um, so trying to find foods and liquids and things that have that in it, I think is really what we're getting at. And that's why I think the right stuff is something that she said they use pretty frequently is because when we're talking about uh, calories intake, you know, diet's important. We want to have some influence there. And that's one of the healthier ways to kind of get that amount of sodium and that amount of chloride, you know, without with little to no negative caloric benefit. So some people are like, well, if I just go get a bucket of, I don't know, 12 piece from KFC, there's plenty of sodium in that. I was like, well, yeah, but there's also a whole lot of other things you don't want to be ingesting from an athletic standpoint. Um, whereas the right stuff or a product like that um, concentrates it for you and you can add it as part of a maybe a more nutritious meal. Does that help? Yeah, so Mike is saying the right stuff. It's it's actually a product called The Right Stuff. Uh, and I've been talking with David and he's looking at sponsoring the podcast. And so if you Google The Right Stuff and he's, the plan is to have him kind of on here talking about the science about it, but he's not just mentioning like, yeah, go make sure you find the correct stuff at the store, but he's actually saying the right stuff uh, is, is a specific product. So um, as we're kind of discussing the chloride, what are some other options that we can find like in food, some things that, that you recommend that, that might be beneficial in that area? In that area, I mean, there's a lot of options, uh, so to speak. Um, but it, but chloride is a little bit of a different animal. I mean, it's going to come in sea salt. You're going to find it in tomatoes, lettuce, celery, olives. So um, I, they always hear if you like chloride, enjoy a Mediterranean diet. Um, I, I hear that pretty frequently. If you like Greek food, you get a lot of chloride um, and things of that nature. Um, and I like Greek food, so it's, it, it works. But um, but I think there's a lot of things that – or like when you tell people um, if you have a salad, make sure it's colorful, you're probably getting your chloride there too. And what we don't know yet, and this is where I think Sandy will be a really good source is, um, so like Kevin and I talked about how you can lose, no matter how much of any type of average sports drink you can get, you're never putting enough sodium back in your body. I would say chloride's not too far off from that because it's usually paired with sodium. So those levels aren't gonna reach what you're losing um, in sweat. So we probably need a little bit more of those numbers to make a definitive statement, but I would argue it's probably along those lines. Um, and then, as far as like what drinks are concerned, like Sandy said, a lot of it's just read the label. And this is what I, I try to get across to people is the FDA requires labels. They require accurate information. Um, and so a lot of this is based off human physiology, not necessarily the manufacturing process of the product. So depending on what's available to you, if you're a Gatorade school, Powerade school, Body Armor sponsors the NCAA now. So it's like there's a lot of options, um, I think, available to a lot of ATs and you'll achieve the same goal. It's not just one product or the other. All right. I think that is all I have. I don't see any, any more questions. Um, so there were a whole lot of people that joined watching live. So let me run through those real quick. Alexis Padilla joined watching live. Uh, Perry, you mentioned his question. Tim Akin, Mark Phillips, Jeff Hopp, John Harmon, Shannon Hall, Tanya Watson, uh, Joe Scarcella, all of them joined watching live, and I'm pretty sure there was more that just don't join. 
Um, and I'm not exactly sure how you do that, but, uh, so thanks for watching live. Thanks for asking questions, participating, uh, Mike, thanks for creating more opportunities for podcasts and learning about, uh, all the cramping science, the, the blood plasma, whatever it is you were saying, um, stuff like that. So, sorry, I probably overcomplicated it way, way too much. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Well, of course, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science folks, which is F-O-W-K-E-S. Again, cramping science folks. Um, and then, Mike, if someone wants to get a hold of you, what's going to be the best way? Uh, same thing. My work email is my first initial M dot last name, McKenney, M-C-K-E-N-N-E-Y at northeastern.edu. All right. Uh, of course, I'm Jeremy Jackson, host of the Sports Medicine Broadcast. So anywhere you go on the Sports Medicine Broadcast, you can find me. So that's pretty easy there. Um, I've been trying to do a lot of Facebook Live, so I really want you to to join there. So if you're um, checking it out, most Wednesdays during the school year, but um, I'm also working on creating events that that are scheduled. So if you're just on Facebook, if you're on, if you're following or liking the Sports Medicine Broadcast on Facebook, then it, then it should send you notifications whenever I have something going live or something like that. Uh, so it's a great way to join live, to ask those questions live, to be part of the conversation um, and really just kind of learn and share together. So I really appreciate everybody joining in. Um, some of the partners for the Sports Medicine Broadcast, Frio Hydration, Dragonfly Max, Myotech, Hoist Hydration, uh, and MedBridge. Most of those, if you want to, if they have a promo code, if you put the SMB in there, then it'll get you some sort of discount. Or if not, then just tell them that uh, Sports Medicine Broadcast or Jeremy Jackson sent you. So again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash cramping science folks, Mike McKinney, Dr. Sandy or Sandra folks, Godek, uh, fantastic time learning. And I look forward to lots more. So Mike, thank you, sir. And that is a wrap.